Hi, and welcome to the Pride Road Architects podcast. I'm Lisa, Lisa Rains, and each episode I'll talk to people who interest me in the world of architecture and business. So join me and fellow lions and lionesses as we explore architecture in the den. So hi everyone, welcome to Architecture in the Den with me, your host, Lisa Rains, and I'd like to introduce you to Julia. So um, Julia, would you just like to introduce yourself? Sure, well, hi Lisa, it's lovely to to see you. My name is Julia and uh, my background is in quantity surveying and construction project management and I run uh, Star Projects, which is a consultancy focusing on helping private clients, homeowners um, in the refurbishment renovation journey. Amazing. So um, we have a variety of listeners. They could be architects, they could be um, sort of business people, entrepreneurs, they could also be uh, students thinking about um, whether to go into architecture or in, into um, other associated industries. A lot of people don't know um, what um, QSing, what a QS does. So so what does a QS do? Um, well, it's a, it's a great question to be fair. I mean, traditionally, QS is, is kind of an accountant's background, right? So QS or a cost consultant, it's a person dealing mainly with budgets, you know, providing quotes, providing all sorts of cost-related um, elements. But these days, or, you know, at least in the industry that we work in, both of us, it's it's not really that, that much of that anymore. Um, QS is working or quantity surveyors working with developers. They tend to, you know, put together appraisals for projects where, you know, they establish whether it's worth doing the job at all and what sort of profit is, is being expected at the end. Excellent. And where are you based? Um, so I'm actually in London, Northwest London in Rickmansworth. But yeah, we cover pretty much most of of London within M25 and neighbouring counties. Excellent. I must introduce you to Schwara, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And get you in to have a chat with us. Um, Cool. So we met, um, I think, during lockdown on Clubhouse, didn't we? Yeah. So how I think so. We've met a few times on Clubhouse, then we've met on on Facebook, I think, a couple Mm -hmm. of times as well. So there's a few spaces, but yeah. I think this is the power of online um and social networking. And we were just talking before about um uh Aratorore um and how you've have you met her? Um, I've never met her in in life, like like person face to face. I we have come across each other quite a few times on social media. Maybe we've spoken once um, on Facebook as well. And she said her showroom is exactly on King's Road, and that was at the time when I was actually working on a showroom or a joinery contractor exactly on King's Road down in Chelsea. So I I popped down and I went to to have a look. I think she wasn't there. 
at the time, but yeah, um, it's kind of interesting how small the world is. It is. I think once you're an entrepreneur and you're kind of trying to get out there um, and then um, sort of it, it starts to become quite a small group, um, sort of female entrepreneurs in the building industry. Um, um, yeah, absolutely. And to be fair, it's almost like we're, we all have quite an open mindset. You know, there are those people who are just like, yeah, this is my world. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I want to do it. And like have that tunnel vision where they don't really allow the outside world to interrupt. Whereas we are like you are toxic. We're all trying to be out there, putting ourselves in, you know, out. Mm. And, th and that's an interesting, you know, perspective where you, when you when you look at for for other people who are doing similar things to you and I think it's about you kind of have to be quite brave to do it um and I, I, sometimes I think I, I don't know if you find you ever get any self-doubt in putting yourself out there yeah so many times I mean to be fair it's it's not only that but if you're putting yourself out there like everything you do everything you say is actually based very much on your mood if you're happy and if you're at your best you can be like the superstar Beyonce you know presenting yourself the best but if you're kind of in that space of oh why am I here what am I doing why did I come you know what do I say where do I go from here yeah it's kind of becoming twice as hard mm. so yeah, when I have those self-doubt moments, I usually go very, very quiet on everybody. <laughs> have you got any advice about how to kind of manage that? Um, how to manage that? I mean, to be honest, I've I've never mastered the management of that. And, you know, I only see that these times come and go. So my, my only advice is, you know, sometimes just just follow it and cut yourself some slack, give yourself some time. Mm -hmm. And just if you don't feel at your best, if you have these self-doubt moments, just just, you know, take some time off, mm -hmm. you know, do something for yourself and just go back to whatever it is that you, you actually can. I usually in those moments go back to simply focusing on my clients focusing on the projects and you know just pushing the world from inside if you know what I mean I usually mm -hmm. go back to to doing what I know how to do best so you know managing from inside out whereas when that time passes and I'm back in my you know winning mindset I can go out and then share what I've learned from those times and how how much fun it was or how how much I enjoyed it and mm -hmm. you know what are the things I would love to do different another time or something so I I usually just step down go back to my safe zone and then once the time is right again then I'll go out from my little shell and bubble and just share it with the world what great advice um yeah I, I remember talking to Claire Nash um about something similar and and she was talking about sort of in women um you know just following your cycle and sort of each at different moments in your cycle you kind of you, your strengths change so you know certain times you're kind of more extroverts 
Um, and then certain times you kind of get more introvert and then you can concentrate, you know, use that time to concentrate on more detailed stuff. 100%. And yeah. It's so. the same with our personal life, right? You mm. know, stuff happens, you know. Um, I don't know if you know, but my father is quite, yeah, terminally ill. Mm. So it's it's a bit of a roller coaster over the last few years. And it's just, you know, we're all human. There's only as much as we can all take in any one time, right? So I, I just usually put you know some sort of boundaries around me and if I'm at my best if I'm happy if everything's okay in my world I'm happy to go and share the happiness mm -hmm. but when I'm kind of at my lowest I don't really want anybody to see me like that <laughs> yeah it's tough it's tough I lied I lost my dad uh nearly 18 months ago yeah um, and you know he, he um he was um had a late diagnosis with cancer and kind of just uh it all happened very very quickly over four months it was like oh and you know I was kind of like trying to be out there at the same time and um you know fate front you're fronting the business and you're fronting um you know for me it was fronting the franchise business as well um and then you know had to put certain things in place as well to help me manage it um but uh no it's pretty it's pretty tough and I think I there's a lot of you know kind of our our age our you know our generation you know kind of like losing parents and coming to terms with sort of handling parents as well you know caring issues and challenging issues with parents. exactly and it's it's just something you can't you can't really plan or prepare yourself for right it's not mm. like you know you can put that in your diary okay these are the two weeks I'm going to be off and you know I just need some headspace for for me um, I mean, with my father, it's been a roller coaster because basically he's been diagnosed a brain cancer and given six months to live about seven years ago. Yeah. Um, so he's well past his expiry date. Um, but basically in COVID, they they found um, a tumor, some 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 sort of something in his lungs. And because, you know, the whole sea world c word has taken over the world and everybody was focusing on lungs for different reasons he wasn't really diagnosed quickly enough um so now it's it's almost like he, he doesn't qualify for an operation anymore so it's it's almost like we know it's coming but at the same time there's this hope that you know it's been it's been so long over what the doctors said from day one that you know it's kind of have that hope that it's going to be fine mm. it's tough I think we were similar as well it was a late diagnosis due to COVID and yeah all I can say is you spend time with him and your family and keep your family close yeah absolutely I mean that's that's definitely something I'm, I'm getting better on this year, one of one mm. of my New Year's resolutions was um, I'm calling my mum every day, even though it's really draining sometimes and it takes a lot of my headspace. 
my mom can talk oh boy she can talk um, <laughs> yeah if you wanted her on the podcast ever you probably would never finish <laughs> um, but it's like you said you know you kind of realize that you might lose someone and then you, you kind of want all these things that you know one one day there might not be somebody on the other mm -hmm. side of the phone so I'd I'd love to stay in touch you know talk to my parents as much as I can mm -hmm. while I still can I think I think what I've learned um sort of through the process and after the process is is the skills that I've learned or have been given from my parents as well yeah so it's quite a nice thing to do but so many times I just catch myself talking just like my mum <laughs> yeah well I'm I'm quite I'm totally different to my mum so I'm usually like and I could never understand how my dad and my mum got together because there's such opposites like you cannot think about two completely different people yeah so I'm I'm probably more like my dad Mm. Um, I'm very much like my mum so you know I never I never really thought of that up until I started you know my own business and I started thinking like how did I get to where I am um, but I'm from a construction family as well right my dad used to be something an equivalent of a building control inspector mm. it's just in Poland we don't really have building control mm. um, but he used to work on uh, major commercial developments for stores and warehouses so he was pretty much like an inspector checking on um you know all sorts of all sorts of building work there um and then my mom she used to work in a construction company doing roads and bridges and she was a construction buyer mm -hmm. so I still have a lot of you know the, the budgeting and mindset that my mom's got like being very money aware Whereas mm. as a person, I'm 100% my dad. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. My my dad was a builder's merchant. Um, and my granddad on my mum's side was a builder and oh. a developer. So, yeah, <laughs> so it's in, in the blood. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much there. You can't, yeah. you can't run away from that. <laughs> so, um going back to sort of growing up where where did you grow up and what what's your journey into QSing um oh my god I mean to be fair I well I was born in Poland I was raised in Poland and, where, whereabouts uh, um so I'm originally from Silesia it's yes it's my dog making an <laughs> appearance right there <laughs> Um, yeah, so it's south and center. We're about 100 kilometers away from Krakow. Mm -hmm. um, so it's fairly industrial area, quite developed. It's a collection of medium-sized cities. Um, and uh, yeah, basically, I, I was there up until when I was 19. Um, we have something called mature exam, which is an equivalent of A-levels, let's say. I think it just happens a couple of years later than the A-levels are done. Um, and then normally people go to university. So I wanted to be an architect, mm -hmm. as, as you do. Um, 
And then back in back in uh, 2010 or 2009, when I wanted to to you know study architecture, the there were exams. There were still exams to 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 sign up, and the exam was you know a one sheet of paper, three pencils, three hours of time, and draw. And well, unfortunately, I I failed. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, my my plan B was to to go and study uh, building engineering, which was building next door, literally. Um, so I started that. I never finished first year. It was incredibly boring. I I didn't find anything interesting over there. And then in the summer, there was um, me and my then boyfriend. We had an opportunity to come to London for summer just to enjoy some, you know, travel. Uh, see see some 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 new world or you know see something different out there and yeah basically I came over to to London and that summer hasn't come to an end yet for the last 13 <laughs> years <laughs> so so did you study here so you did your yeah. right okay so where, where did you study um so I did my first degree in product design funny enough in oh. uh, Middlesex University Mm. Um, then I've done my master's in architecture, interiors and design. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then at the time when I was when I was studying, I was working in a construction company and it was always quite a small company. So the first company I worked for, it was probably about 20 people. Um, there was about three of us in the office. It was run by a father and a son. Um, and mainly, you know, I was I was helping them with pricing with you know ordering things procurement putting together tender responses and these types of things um then I was moved over to a site and I got all the experience from you know literally being a site-based QS PM person uh, so I've learned a lot in terms of what it really looks like what's what's going on there for, for sure for real um, and then I changed uh, a company to slightly, slightly bigger one. Um, but then over there, it was pretty much just the owner and me. Um, and as much as he was helping in terms of, you know, putting the tender responses, for example, he always had the final say. I was pretty much getting all of the, you know, pricing myself, doing all the takeoffs. I had to kind of self-learn that very, very quickly um and on my own mistakes so I was probably about five six years into that world when I actually went and did my master's degree in uh, construction project management mm -hmm. um so yeah that's that's pretty much how how I've started you know with just hands-on you know counting measuring scale rulers and all sorts of stuff so are you involved in RICS? Um, so, yeah. uh, so my, my degree is accredited. Yes, I was, I was, uh, I've applied for the membership quite some time ago. I had the, um, I went through all the, whatever you have to have the, the skills, mm -hmm. and you know, put together the proof in writing of what you've done, what you've achieved. Um, I kind of stepped away from regs cause I, I got, I was really unhappy with how the whole COVID was handled over there. I think it you know the support that was coming from them to all the other people was was really unfair and insufficient and you know 
from an organization like Riggs, I, I would expect something better. Um, and because I work with private clients, you know, the membership with Riggs, I don't think it makes much of a difference to me at this point. Um, I do follow the Riggs uh, conduct of um, procedures and, you know, I follow the new rules of measurements, et cetera, et cetera. But I just kind of stepped out of the membership because I don't think everything that they're doing for the members or in terms of supporting them is, you know, what I would expect from an organization as such. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, where do you see yourself in five years time? Um, well, it's an interesting question because um, I was, I was talking to somebody uh, last week about it. So I've, um, I mean, in terms of my, my business journey, I've learned so much working with, with private people, especially mm. over COVID, who, you know, usually the the people like you or me, right? They they just want to have an, a home, they want to have a house done to a certain standard, they want to live in it and enjoy it. They don't necessarily understand the construction processes. And I personally do not believe it's the architect's job to start explaining all the nitty-gritty you know, cost planning and, and programming and what goes after what. Um, so I've noticed that there is quite a quite a big niche in the market and, you know, there's quite a big need in the market for, for people like me combining, you know, the QSing and project management for, for basically private people, for the end users. Mm. Um, and what I'm working on right now, funny enough, is, is creating a franchise model for that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, rather than, you know, building a typical consultancy, I'd love to, I'd love to create something that would help and, you know, give, give people the access to, you know, other professionals like I am mm. with understanding of what they're actually going to get. And at the same time, it's helping people like me, mm. uh, five years ago, get into that industry a little bit quicker and easier. Mm. Well, that's interesting. So um, we should have a chat about the franchise model as well, because <laughs> uh, yeah, it was uh, it's, it's uh, quite an interesting route to go down, um, and it's got lots of challenges. And I'm sure we can uh, have a chat. Maybe I can help you. Yeah, definitely. I mean. I do I do appreciate how how much and how how much legal and how much you know understanding goes into the actual franchise model building. Um mm. so I'm kind of not I'm not there yet, but it's a definitely interesting conversation to have. Yes. Mm. Mm. So which which parts are you thinking of franchising? Um the QS the QS and construction pro the project management yeah so I'm, I'm trying to create almost like a hybrid model mm. for the purpose of you know projects say up to a million pounds value where yeah. you know a person doesn't necessarily need a separate qs and a separate pm to carry yeah. on with the work yeah uh, but they could definitely benefit with someone else other than either an interior designer or an architect just to explain to them the contracting methods, the, um, 
you know, uh, the, the whole budgeting, cost planning, where's, where's the contingency going, what's going on in the world, how we can save, how we can't save, what's not worth saving on. Um, and then basically from, from then, once, once I've got this, this model built and, you know, it's, it can be, you know, re repeatable, Mm. Um, then you know I'd, I'd love to be able to either franchise it or license it or create something I mean I was looking into you know the whole exp model for the estate agents right and how they've created that you know independent agents but at the same time with the um um with with the exp powered logo and you know with all the backup and security from that from that yes. EXP. Oh, so estate agents. Uh, I think it's it's a mod. There's quite a few models like that. I, I think nest seekers have it as well. Um, there's, I know of EXP. I think there's Tyron Ash as well. There's a couple more, uh, but basically it's for the independent estate agents who you know who who don't want to start from scratch completely as a as a as a name. They get all the paperwork, they get all of the information, support and help from mm. you know, organizations like EXP, who puts them together as their own either licensees or franchisees. I'm I'm not I'm not too sure how, how they're being signed up, but mm. yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> so I know. Have you um sort of been to any of the franchise shows or sort of met any of the the British Franchise Association um no I think there was a couple of meetups was it woman woman in franchising something oh. like that um so yeah I, I went to a couple of meetups with um with those and mm. there was quite an interesting conversation from one of the lady lawyers who was explaining you know the differences between licensing and franchising and from a legal and contractual point of view, how it how it works, um, which yeah, I was terrified. I thought I understand a little bit about law, <laughs> but that I I thought I have no clue what you're talking about. That whole conversation could be in another language, and I would understand exactly the same amount. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically, it's it's something I'd love to look into, and over the next five years, I'd love to create something like that, but. Mm. I'm pretty much at the beginning of that journey. Oh, that sounds very interesting. What uh, was the smallest size um, project that you do? Um, what's the smallest? To be fair, it's it depends, but I usually say it's about two hundred fifty thousand in value. Yeah, and it's purely because you know anything below that people probably can't afford and it financially doesn't make sense to, mm. to put another person in involved in the project mm. I'm, I'm, yeah I mean for us that's there's probably a low um no it would be good to get a QS in at those smaller stages as well because yeah. then the market is enormous yeah <laughs> I mean, it's it's really interesting because we've we've actually launched a um, an offer for uh, helping architects, and and it was pretty much aimed for the interior designers more than the architects, uh, but basically to help them tender the projects, right? So put together a proper RICS scope of work, 
including all the all the elements that you have to go through so there's no scope gaps right so you, if you follow a template you can't you can't you can't miss something unexpectedly in theory um and basically we've made it quite quite a low price right so it's only five thousand mm -hmm. pounds and then basically we put together a pre-qualification questionnaire we filter through the um, builders contractors etc uh, we select however many to attend, uh, we send them all the uh, all the drawings, all the information, all the specifications, etc. And then we put together the comparison of the tender returns, so it makes it very clear and easy to understand with mm. where who's where in terms of the price, in terms of the program, etc. And to be fair, it's it's been yeah, it's been quite a journey to see as well what's happening in the market, right? Because. Mm -hmm. Last year, probably around summertime, it was very hard to get responses from contractors. The market was not interested. It was it was definitely contractors' market. Right now, we're just we've just finished tendering a week ago, and we've got five out of five responses. So it tells oh, us. Oh wow, that, that is interesting. Yeah, so you know the market is back in the clients' hands. Mm what um what due diligence do you do on a contractor um before you tender or do um, so usually we go through all sorts of you know financial elements we check we ask for for three years accounts we check the references um if there is like if there's like some sort of specific element that's required the project, for example, we're working on right now, the one I just told you about uh, that we finished a week ago, it's going to have the spiral cellar in it. Yeah. So, you know, sort of basement experience, any type of, you know, more than the groundwork, but you know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. something along these lines would be beneficial. So we usually go through all these questions within the um, pre-qualification so if somebody's never done anything like it, they only do lofts, then they're probably not the right contractor anyway. Um, and I usually reach out to between 10 to 15. We assess the responses from early on before they even put any prices on. And from there, we invite to tender only those that we think that would be, yeah, that, that would be a match to be fair. How many do you invite? Five. Um, so on this one, we've invited five. It's usually between four to eight, depending on like last year, for example, when the market was really weird and really on the contractor's side, we would go to as many as eight and then we probably would get three to four responses. So it it very much depends. Mm. You kind of can judge from, you know, how quickly and how to how much detail people go in terms of the pre-qualification response, right? You know how hungry they are for the project, if they're interested, if they're not interested. And then if the if the amount of responses you get is quite low, then that suggests to me that the actual tender responses will be similar. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd probably up that a little bit. So we've got a decent range of three to four quotes as a minimum to, to choose the one that we we're gonna go with because there's well, always some people who drop out in the process right but yes um well 
thank you very much julia it's been lovely talking to you um i think we stay on the line and we'll have a chat uh, afterwards and i'd love to talk to you more about um maybe have a chat with our team and talk to you about franchising there's lots of tangents we can go off in definitely well it was lovely to to see you again finally and yeah it was lovely to chat okay thank you very much Thank you for joining me, Lisa Raines, for Architecture in the Den. If you want to find out about franchising, check out our website, prideroadfranchise.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe and leave a review. And do get in touch through your favourite platform if you'd like to be a guest.